So last night I finished reading Larkin's Wits and Weddings, which I've had on my shelf for too, too long, but finally sat down to read. And it is so glorious and so devastating. Such a devastating collection of poetry. Today's guest is Joel Dean. Joel is a poet and novelist based in Melbourne. You might hate this comparison, but I feel that there is something Larkin-esque about Joel's work. It's got that same brutal honesty, honesty to the point of being quite devastating at times. I really loved Joel's last poetry collection, The Year of the Wasp, and the new novel, which is called Judas Boys, I finished a couple of weeks ago and I was just full of questions about it. It's one of those books that puts its author completely on the line. Just to outline it in very broad strokes, it's a story of a man who has basically lost it all in midlife. He's lost his family, his marriage, his job, uh, probably through his own self-destructive actions. And so we spend time with him in the present and he keeps returning to things that happened when he was at school, at a Catholic boys' school. So like I say, I was full of questions after I finished this, and it was great to be able to sit down with Joel. We were both in quite a strange mood, probably not the best mood. I appeared to be quite angry recently, and I get randomly furious at Bill Harwood at one point and Helen Garner at another point. Joel is very gracious in both these instances. Uh, what I love about talking to Joel is that he never fakes it. Just because I have the microphone clipped to him, he is still exactly the same person. It's a very rare thing to have somebody act exactly the same way before you hit record and after, but Joel is one of these people. So I, I really want to thank Joel for being so open with me in this conversation. I do hope you enjoy this. It's definitely, like the book, it is an exceptionally honest conversation about what it's like to write and what that takes and how it feels. I will be back at the end with some corrections and apologia after my last episode on Charles Harper. Until then. I want to go back to something that you just said though, which is very funny. You said, I've been thinking about poetry and thinking about what makes a poem worth letting out of the house. Yes. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, I write a lot. I'm always reading and writing poetry. And most of the stuff I write at the end, of, I look, I re read it back and I'm just like, I, I don't like it. And it's shit. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, you know, it's sort of, how can I put it? It doesn't have that whole, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it needs to live. Mm. Yeah. I'm pretty, yeah, I think, I mean, I, 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 I'm I, mean, becoming increasingly brutal with my writing, just across the board, and critical of my writing. Not in a, you know, woe is me way, but just, you know, there's so much stuff out there, and mm. it's got to be, it's got to, I don't mean it has to have a message, but it has to have, it has to have a, has to have a piece of me. It's like, you know, if my soul, if my soul is a piece of ham, I've got to shave off a, pretty meaty slice of the thing. Right. You know what I mean? It can't just be a writing exercise. And I mean, a lot of my poetry has got a lot of that, but it's also, it can also be just primal scream, like, you know. So mm. I don't think I'm explaining myself really well, but it's... So it has to, there has, has to be stakes? Something has to be at stake. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And is that something that's gotten, you've gotten more brutal about? Yeah, have you got more brutal? Yeah, I, I think that I'm getting more, um, not self-conscious, but I just feel like it's, it's, I think I've changed. Life gets more complicated. So writing has to get, my writing therefore gets more and everything that feeds into it becomes more complicated. Mm. And um, it's almost like there's extra sort of hurdles it needs to clear to get to the end to feel resolved. Mm. And a lot of my stuff, I think that I just haven't had a lot of the poetry I've written over the last, I mean, it's been a while since my last collection of poetry. 
and I have written a lot of poetry, but it just generally speaking hasn't felt complete. Mm. And maybe that's just that my life's been such... I mean, my life is an extreme sport and um, it just doesn't feel like it's like it's resolved. Yeah, yeah. so maybe I, I need to live a bit more. Um, I'm wondering, do you want to go into any of the elements that make it so extreme? Sure. What, Absolutely. Yeah, what are, what are those things that are feeding into it? Oh, well, I think that for, there's a lot of different stuff. One would be, um, we are, I'm married with three kids. One of my kids has Down syndrome. I'm trying to be, I'm a freelance writer. You know, I'm trying to sort of be a decent parent, a decent partner. And the truth is, is that, you know, Sophie is 20, turning 23. It's really, really um, complicated trying to get her... She wants everything a 23-year-old wants, so trying to get her life out there mm. um, and make it work for her is a, a full-time job. And so the other thing is is that I'm very political, so there's things that I want to have a... that I've got an investment in that I want to help. And we all have people we care about that we're responsible to and for, and I've got... I feel I'm very responsible for people. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So that pulls pulls you away from the writing, but also you feel like I when you are writing, it makes it better. Makes it, it makes better. me it makes my writing better. Yeah, but I'm finding as I'm getting older, and this is also post having a stroke in you know 2000 and was a, it's a long time ago now, 10 years ago, is that I'm much much more emotional, and so things really have very big impacts on me and um, upset me, and dealing with that mm. is difficult. And not getting easier. Um, so, yeah, so complicated. And I think that just finding, getting things on equilibrium where I sort of feel like I'm able to resolve, you know, sort of put things down, all of that stuff on the paper in a way that feels not bullshit. Mm. Like, I can, I could write a poem if you put a gun to my head, but it wouldn't be any good, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, it's got to feel like it's... It's got to mean something, and I don't mean, you know, something on a necessarily on a logical line, but, it's, you know, I mean, I'm not explaining myself very well, but I'm right from an emotional, I'm right from emotion, and I'm very emotional and becoming more so. This is worrying me because, as I was saying to you before we started, I've been having a what-the-fuck kind of day. Hmm. And I think that we maybe tell ourselves that uh, as I get older, though, I will mellow. Things will become easier because I will have the hmm. wisdom of experience, more perspective and patience. I, I actually, well, I think there's something to that. I think that I've, um, how can I put it? I've lived through it more and circumstances have taught me more about what I am and am not. Mm. Um, and I'm grateful, a lot more grateful for what I've got than I was. Mm. So I see the, pre you know, the precious nature of, you know, the, and the ephemeral nature of life. Um, and I don't want to just sleepwalk through this thing and, you know, and sort of, um, and sort of, yeah, I don't want to sleepwalk this, through this thing. So, mm. I th but I think, you know, for me, it's just, um, yeah, I think, I mean, like, I think it's really, uh, got, you know, yeah, I've had a couple of difficult, difficult couple of years, to be honest, mm. just trying to deal with stuff, you know, and um, usually when I write, usually when I write at the end of it, I feel better. Um, and I haven't been. Mm. I've been um, feeling worse. So. I think you alluded to that a little bit when we were exchanging emails about Judas Boys. One thing you said was that you approached the writing of it like a poem. Mm. And you were saying before we started recording that you drafted it 25 times, yes. which, is, which is quite scary. And you also said that it nearly killed you. Yeah. So talk, tell me about that. Well, I, look, the thing is, at the end, of, at the end of it, um, I needed psychological help. Right. So that's yeah. At the end of it, I usually get the end. I feel better at the end of this. I got to the end, and I felt um, dangerous. Yeah. 
Right. So. Wow. Yeah, so that's... It's kind of a dangerous book. Is it? It feels that way. It feels a little bit dangerous to me reading it. There are a few moments where I was like, wow. Yeah. He's really, he's really going straight in there. <laughs> yeah. It's a, to me, if I were going to try to sum it up to you, I would say it's a story about a guy who starts at rock bottom and then goes further down. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But there's this one act towards the end of the book that he takes, one action that he takes, which I wanted to ask you about because you could frame it as a redemptive thing, a redemptive action. But I wonder whether you're interested in that idea at all. Like whether In redemption? Yeah. Um, if you look at what I write, no. Um, I mean, it's the, thing, it's the interesting thing where we say stuff. I believe in redemption. I believe in all this sort of stuff. And I, say, I have said that. But then I look at everything I've written and I don't see much of it. Mm. So I think that at this point in my, you know, I wouldn't call it career, but at this point in my being a, of my life as a writer, I'm, I'm sort of, I've looked back at what I've written and it's pretty bleak. <laughs> look, there's, that's not necessarily a bad thing though. No, look, and, I, I, and it's just, it's what comes out. Like I write from, you know, the semi-subconscious state quite often. And, you know, this was written in a very heightened state and I got to, I get to the end and I'm like, why is it so bleak? Why is this so dark? And this is why is it shot through so much of my stuff? Um, and I'm trying. I don't know why. Mm. I mean, I think I think it reflects my view of the world. But mm. redemption. I'd hope I'd hope for it. There is redemption for anybody. Um, but I've got a pretty low opinion of, <laughs> of what. Well, yeah, in particular men and what we do. Um, do you want to talk more about that? Uh, yeah, sure, sure. So in the novel, the the main character is in a position of having lost his job due to unspecified, hmm. probably probably sexual harassment or maybe more. Uh, yeah, it's never really uh, likely. To. No, there's a lot. It's left open because yeah. again, this is it's again. If it's written, it's written in the first person. It's him talk, telling his story. So, and there's a lot. It's about his. You know, it's about guilt and shame and those sorts of emotions. And I know we don't tell the truth about ourselves to ourselves. We lie about ourselves, especially you know, like I tell you a version of my life. Mm. And I'm depending on what you know, what's driving me at that moment. It'll be, it'll be sort of um, calibrated a certain way. Mm. And for someone like that, who's just who's really gotten himself in so much trouble, I just he wouldn't say it. That makes sense. That makes complete sense to me. And so talking about guilt and shame, the setting for half of the novel is a Catholic boys school hmm. these institutions fascinate the hell out of me a couple of my uh, close friends here went through um, boys schools religious boys schools is that the case for you too you went yeah, through, yeah. I, I was a country kid was going to a reasonably rough boys country Catholic boys school in in country Victoria, my family moved to North Fitzroy mm -hmm. in the early 80s. And then I was sent to St. Kevin's in Turak. And that was like going to the moon, you know. Is St. And Kevin's quite a posh school? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it is. Okay. So um, so this is a, obviously this is a work of fiction, um, but it's informed by things I saw and that at both both Catholic schools and you know and, and St Kevin's in particular there's a, a big um, people I went through school with you know both schools were sexually abused and you know and, and my father had a really bad time at Catholic boys schools too you know, and he died um, sort of that was one of the triggers sort of that for, that got me writing this and so yeah, it was sort of trying to, again, I didn't, when I started writing, I didn't know what I was writing. I just knew I was really upset. So 
that's so it was so I went down that path and and started writing it and rewriting it and rewriting it um, and and the book is the finished product of that um, and and sort of and the thing it's it's sort of sh- you know when I was writing all this stuff and I didn't realize it's got a lot of imagery and symbolism in it which just a lot of it came to me in my sleep things like I, it's not I didn't actually plan it it just sort of came out which is very much like poetry mm-hmm. for me poetry comes out of that whole I get into this sort of you know like a dream state and I'm writing something and rewriting and I'm dreaming about it and then I it comes to it comes to completion through that sort of like that sort of the handover between the conscious and the subconscious mm. so right right do you think it's possible to go through an institution like that say you go in with a certain degree of faith mm. in God. Do you think it's possible to hold on to that? Yes. Look, I think that I come from a very religious family. Um, I think I've got no faith in... I've got no faith in these institutions. I've got no faith in the church. <laughs> um, so far as, um, you know, the great mystery of life, like why the hell are we here and where are we headed? Um, you know, I don't, you know, I don't open up the Bible and turn to Mark and, you know, and look for the answer there. But, um, yes, I think that, I think that there is, it's possible for, for some sort of belief system to survive that. But I think in a lot of, a lot of these institutions have been, um, are more corporations than communities and don't really give a rat's ass about faith or individuals it's about money and and i think they've destroyed a lot of people and i think they've betrayed a lot of people and so i mean you know judas boys you know it's about betrayal as well and um and i think it's you know these boys have betrayed each other and i think that they've been betrayed by these institutions Mm. so you know it's sort of i'm not sure if i've answered no 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 that that answers it for sure yeah i mean It's, it's sort of hard to talk about without just saying something really brutal, like there's nothing, there's nothing good about a, a Catholic boys' school. Like it's just, it is just like straight up <laughs> well, and down, like a bad place. Well, know? well, I put it, you know, put it this way: and Noah, who my 21-year-old, who saw, he went to. Um, Actually, funnily enough, I think all my kids went to Catholic schools basically because we went to a local pub- public school with my eldest daughter, Sophie, who's got Down syndrome, and we're told to go away. So they ended up right. going to a Catholic school. But right. um, he, um, I would never have sent him to a boys' school. Yeah, uh, that's never. the other side of it. I mean, it's these boys' schools are not healthy. They're not, they're not good for people. Um, so... Um, yeah, I, and look, they're so much a part of our, they're so um, baked into our education system, our governments, you know, going right back to the 1890s, this is all about identity too. We can't unpick that, mm. you know, but um, these schools have to be held to account, especially these are schools that receive taxpayers' money. Yeah. Um, and I think that they have an obligation that they need to fulfil. Um, so yeah, I, and the the Catholic Church in this case um, has got form, you know, and I don't trust it. I really don't. And um, and the Christian brothers have got form, you know, and I certainly don't trust them. And I, you know, and I, you know, again, I spent a lot of time with people I went through with who were, you know, in court actions with mm. the Christian brothers. And you know they're they're bastards. Right? I wanna. I won't make you talk about the book the entire time, but I wanted to ask whether you wanted to talk at all about the person that's dedicated to. Uh, Michael Gurr, yeah. Well, Michael, he died also just after my dad died. Michael is a playwright, poet theatre director, actor, and he was a political speechwriter. And I, when I worked in politics many moons ago, um, we sort of got in touch. And, you know, he was a great friend of mine. And, um, 
He died um, May of 2017. Um, and yeah, I, I miss him. Mm. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it feels incredibly um, honest to the point of like an extreme risk. <laughs> but like, what else are we here to do, basically? Yeah. yeah. I'd like to write a happy book. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to get to any happier subject matter with the poems that we want to talk about. I did want to ask you to read this poem that you sent to me called Tipperary. Would that be okay? Yeah, sure. It's, sure. Uh, I think I've got a copy here. Yeah, okay, great. It's, um, it's sort of, yeah, maybe slightly on the long side, but I think like... Do you want me to explain it at all? Yeah, or? that'd be great, yeah. Um, so I went, you know, I went to Ireland on a... After my father and Michael died, I went to Ireland on a trip because I won the Vincent Buckley Prize. And so effectively ran away. And, um, and, and I sort of said to them when they gave me money, I was like, oh, family came from Tipperary in the 1850s, so of course I'm going to track down my family. And I was like, bullshit. <laughs> That's not actually what I'm going to do. No, no, I went there and did a whole bunch of other stuff. And I thought, oh, better try and track down Tipperary. So I drove to a town called Laura, which is basically, you know, a lean-to in the middle of Tipperary near the River Shannon and, and um, went there and, and I was put in touch with a local historian who was a handyman who showed me, you know, took me out to this ruin that was the the family farm that my forebears left in 1850 and it was a very because again my, my family um, like a lot of families they left during the you know, my, this is part of the family they left Ireland during the famine um, and shut the door on it never went back and sort of in, and I'm pretty sure I was the first member of the family my part of the family to ever go back to Ireland so it was a very strange and when I was going around Ireland, I did poetry readings and stuff like that. And, you know, at one poetry reading, you know, I remember an English poet. I was introduced as an Australian-Irish poet, and I was there like, what the hell, you know? And an English poet came up to me and was like, do you identify as an Irish-Australian poet? And I was like, don't even identify as Australian. Like, you know, um, so no. And I think this is, the, and it was, it was a wonderful experience, and I met a lot of wonderful people, but it didn't feel like home. Did Australia feel less like home when you got back here? Um, I, yeah, I think I, I was pretty messed up, to be honest. Um, I think that what I realised when I was away was that home is people that I care about. That's sort of it. Yeah. It's where it's it's um it's where they're at and what I'm doing for them. Mm. So I think that um, you know I th you know obviously I you know the connection thing and this is something that you know you know every time I go to an event and they have the acknowledgement of country it's like it's pretty cool and it's like well I don't have that. Mm. You know, like I grew up in the Golden Valley, Yorta Yorta country, and I've you know that's really cool. You know, um, but I don't have that, and I don't think I can have have that until this treaty. Yeah. Right. So yeah, yeah, you know, this yeah. is so. Um, so this sort of yeah. So I don't think I'm answering your question, but yeah, I don't feel I belong. No. Would you like to read it? Yeah, sure. Tipperary. The local historian, a motor-mouthed bantam of a cork man, I barely understand. Moonlights as the local handyman. Asks me twice to climb into the cab of his white van, panels sprayed with mud, rear jammed with gear, floor littered as the Mariana Trench. Coming or not, he calls through the open window. Says Barry is his name. I leave my hire car at the graveyard, allow myself to be hurtled down narrow corridors of hedgerows and stone fences beneath a low ceiling of slate cloud. And there behind the GAA field is the crop that never rises, the famine dead. 
and there the shambles that serves as a visitor centre and souvenir shop, and there by the Shannon, the old workhouse, and that there, that's the ancient well some saint drowned in, and see them cows, they're guarding the relic of a castle someone killed for. Everything is deeply, darkly painted, poorly lit, slightly damp, badly framed. At a crossroad, the van jags left, then accelerates, then brakes, then skids to a stop on a gravel drive. Motor snorting at the rotten teeth of a wooden gate in the mouth of a waist-high fence of dirty grey stone. We climb the gate and walk muddy gutters made by generations of tractor tyres, passing on a guard of bare birch trees. And there on the other side of another gate, at the end of it all, are more cows and the ruin that the strangers who died and lived that I might do the same, abandoned, seven generations past. Here it is, here's your place, Barry points at a pile of wet black stones with sky for a roof and a goat willow for a tenant. My guide hates silences, prattles, drowning out the bulls of cows and the growls of passing lorries. I cannot listen. My mind roars. It is freezing. My face burns with cold. I am famished, but not for food. I have a passport, but nowhere left to go. And the mud beneath my feet is too hot to stand. So you emailed this through to me and told me that it's an unpublished poem. Yeah. Going back to what we were saying before about poems that are good enough to let out of the house, <laughs> what is it about this that maybe, is it just that it's a bit recent and you're not quite sure? Oh, look, it's, it's some, one that I've really I've worked a lot on. I think that it's probably okay. Um, I just feel that at the moment it's, it's probably pointing towards a direction I need to go. Right. in poetry and style and all the rest. And I think that it's, um, I'm not there yet. It might, it might work as part of a larger piece. And I think I work, think in cycles and I feel like I've just, I've had several sort of goes and I just seem to be going around a merry-go-round <laughs> rather than a cycle. But I'm thinking the cycle is more of a, um, not a documentary style, but more of a, you know, there's sort of like, there's a, was it C.K. Williams, sort of like stuff which is a bit more, a little, just, I need to break a little bit from my past approach. Like my last poetry collection was pretty, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I don't want to write a collection like Year of the Wasp or Magisterium. If I'm going to write a poetry collection, I want it to be different. Mm. That's all. Mm. Um, but yeah, look, it's, I don't think it's, a bad poem. I, I very much relate to that feeling of, it's not that what I'm writing is bad, it's just that it's on the way to something and I haven't got there yet. Yeah. And that's actually part of it. It just involves writing a bunch of poems that are on the way to the actual mm. poem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And look, and this is one that's hanging under the back of the car and I think will still be there at the end of it, right? Uh, when we get there. Mm. Um, there's a bunch of others that won't. Um, and I think that it's sort of, if I feel like I'm close. I think, I think part of the issue is I need to get to a point where I can, yeah, it just, it requires such an intensity of, it requires such an intensity of effort. And um, I pay such a, it's, it pay, I pay a pretty, um, it hurts. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. It's really good to talk to somebody too who's willing to talk about not only the like the cost of it, the psychological cost of it, but also being in a transitional state. Mm. So often I think when I speak to people, they want to present a like a smooth surface. The Sunday best version. Yeah, yeah. Like I I know what I'm doing and mm. I have a project and I'm working towards yeah, yeah. it and this is the story. 
Well, it's funny because we were talking about you know getting older before. You know, sort of the thing is um, one of the consequences of getting older is I don't give a shit. I'm like we're here for such you know we're here for such a a nanosecond. Like, what's the point mm-hmm. of putting on a you know I can't I don't have time to put on a show. I barely got time to put on my pants. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I've just got to. <laughs> just going to get on with it yeah. right and and go through this you know process and I, I you know I'm sure there's a quicker way to to you know sort of resolution there's a, sure there's a quicker way to get to this you know but I don't seem to ever do the quicker way or the smart way or the any yeah it's, I usually I just go some go track right so yeah I wanted to ask you too about so you met Kieran Carson yeah. Am I pronouncing his name correctly? I think so. Okay. Yeah. You met Kieran Carson when you were in Ireland on the... In Belfast, in yeah. In Belfast, right. Yeah. And, um, for the Vincent Buckley Prize. Tell us about meeting him and then maybe we can hear this Yeah. Well, he was... I mean, I met him... It was sort of the year before he died. And um, I, I fell in with a really lovely bunch of young poets who were sort of studying around at Queen's College in Belfast and incredibly generous and very smart, wonderful poets. And um, and they sort of said, they asked him, could I come along to, you know, this, their regular sort of thing, uh, sort of poetry group that they held with him. And so I went along and met him, exchanged books, and he was a lovely guy. And he's, he's a musician and he's a, you know, a, po- a poet and a teacher. And um, the thing that was really... Um, the thing that really struck me about what you know, sitting in and just sitting in on this poetry group was how they—he um, was not a guy who had set ideas about stuff. He was very, but he had—he was a language guy, obviously. He was fluent in, you know, Gaelic as well as English, and he, um, and he just had a, a very a way of just teasing out and sort of—I mean—and sort of focusing on words and what they meant one you know one of the things that another poet i met in ireland was a guy called this canadian guy called ken babstock and he said something that stuck with me he said whatever you write whatever emotional state you're you're in that gets stuck to the words you write and that they travel cool. travel and i was like oh i wish i, like I thought that. that yeah um and sort of and then you know so then i'm in a room listening to this guy you know um Kieran Carson, and he's talking, and he's talking again so much about the words we choose. I'm seeing a correlation there. And then when you look at his poetry, you know, so I mentioned C.K. Williams, I think earlier. You know, so like, and again, he's really influenced by C.K. Williams, and sort of like these long lines, and these, and you know, um, like I was, I, before we um, sort of had this, I went back and read his collection, Belfast Confetti, and it's. It's about, you know, he's sort of, he has this, he's trying to sort of map a city in words and language. And it's a very, very um, beautiful, intricate way to do it. And he's writing in such a, with such a, so much panache and in such a way that's better than journalism, better than documentary. It's like, it's, it's, it's wonderful, wonderful stuff and shows the possibilities of poetry. And so I just found that really, um, it just showed me, how far I had to go. I'll ask you more about that, but let's hear the title poem from that collection. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's actually a different, funnily, I think it's in a different collection, but um, it's called um, Belfast Confetti. And Belfast Confetti, to explain, it's sort of like, um, it's a, you know, back during the Troubles, it's sort of what they call when you're (laughs) throwing all sorts of nuts, bolts, half bricks or whatever else at the... uh, at the British soldiers, right? So, Belfast Confetti. Suddenly, as the riot squad moved in, it was raining exclamation marks. Nuts, bolts, nails, car keys, a fount of broken type. And the explosion, itself an asterisk on the map. This hyphenated line, a burst of rapid fire. I was trying to complete a sentence in my head, but it kept stuttering. All the alleyways and side streets blocked with stops and columns. I know this labyrinth so well, 
Balaclava, Raglan, Inkerman, Odessa Street. Why can't I escape? Every move is punctuated. Crimea Street, dead end again. A Saracen, Kremlin to mesh. Macrolan face shields, walkie-talkie. What is my name? Where am I coming from? Where am I going? A fusillade of question marks. It's it's really I mean obviously it's about troubles and you know the, the streets he mentions these are these are places he grew up and yeah he's a guy who lived his whole life in Belfast, um, and like and and again that poetry group like that was not you know there were sort of Catholics and Protestants there it was a very they were, it was not a you know it was not they were not a divided sort of group. Um, but it was sort of the thing was when I went to places, you know, the the, heart, the ground zero of the troubles, the place called Derry, up further outside of um, Belfast, and you know, and you could just see the hatreds were still very much around. And when you, and when I think about where so much is heading in the world, it's why when you ask me what poem I've been thinking about about Northern Ireland because of what's happening in the world right now, and about and and how divided we seem to be. Um, intent on making ourselves, and, um, and you know, and, and the lessons I took from my time in Northern Ireland is that nothing good ever comes of it, you know. But it's yeah, but it's a wonderful poem. It's sort of like this whole the metaphor of you know the metaphor of this. Ex, it's an extended metaphor of punctuation as explosion, and mm. it's great. Mm. Yeah. So how we're talking before about the relationship between Irish writing and Australian writing. It sounds like you see a, a through line in terms of Irish poetry and Australian poetry. How would you explain Australian poetry, or how did you explain Australian poetry to that group? Oh, did they ask? They didn't really. Yeah, no. Nah. It's, it's well, <laughs> well, the interesting thing again, I mentioned Ken Babstock, you know, the Canadian poet, because I chatted with him, and I was just like, "So Ken, you know, he's a, you know, he's my age, he's a lovely guy," and I was like, "So Ken." Um, do you have the same issue in Canada that no one really gives a rat's ass about your poetry outside of Canada? And he's like, yeah, totally. Yeah. And you know, it's with the, in, unless you're from the UK or, you know, or US, it's in English language, it doesn't really correlate. Mm. And Ireland is this weird outlier there. Irish poetry travels. Mm. It gets published and read elsewhere. Um, and I think that that's really, really, um, why is that? Well, I think that it's, a lot of it's to do with the, um, goes back to uh, the great exodus from Ireland. You know, Ireland's still a hell of a lot, its population's still a lot less than it was around 1850. And so it's, you know, they've just spread their, their sort of, um, their people are spread all over the globe and they speak English. And, and I think that particularly America, and it's fired an interest in, Irish poetry, whereas Australia, we're just um, the world really doesn't care, and I think that, and I think that we should stop trying to make them care. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the last episode of Poetry. Series. No, no. <laughs> what I mean that, by that is what I mean by that is just don't um, stop worrying so much about whether yeah, they care. Yeah, don't or not. try to. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think I mean I read a lot. I love American, English, Irish poetry. I could read all and Australian poetry, but it's like. Um, look, they'll find us or they won't. And again, what's the purpose of poetry? Um, you know, obviously, I, you know, I publish poetry because I think it's worth letting out of the house. But mm. the purpose, I don't, I'm not writing poetry or publishing poetry. The, the reward is actually the, is the production of the poetry. The reward is not anything else. It's not, you know, like whether it's reviews or, you know, awards or anything like that. That's just, that can't be the purpose of writing poetry or novels or anything and mm. the you know for me the the actual the process of creation is the purpose mm. yeah the, and then if it gets to a point where it's good enough to let out of the house then that's the end product and I'm I'm done mm. you know so I mean this is I guess this is a self-protect this is a protective mechanism isn't it I'm saying this so that it's okay if everyone ignores my work. <laughs> well, but it also goes to something you were saying before as well about like 
uh, we don't support the production of literature in no. this country. So, of course, you have to make the production of the poetry the goal. Yeah, you do. You do. And, and look, the thing, I mean, I mentioned when we were beforehand that we were chatting, I think that Australian poetry stands up really well with Irish poetry. I think we've got great poetry, great poets. I would say, generally speaking, Australian lit fiction does not stand up as well compared to Irish um, or English um, fiction or American fiction. And that's not because our writers aren't as good. It's because we do not, the money is not invested in the production, or the editorial process. Yeah, well, um, most of the publishers are working on a shoestring or volunteering. Yeah. And it's pretty, and it's, you can tell when you're picking up a lot of these books. I'm like, wow, like there's a great novel here and you have just flushed it. Because you have not spent, you know, you've not given this writer the time that he or she needs to finish. Yeah, um, yeah, I hear that said again and again, and and it's in reviews too. Now. Yeah, I've seen really well written reviews where people just talk about like this is a good novel. Yeah, yeah. in somewhere. <laughs> yeah, but it's like it's yeah. just this, you know, this drive by publishing, yeah. right? It's just not, and um, and I think that that's, I mean, and I think who's to blame for that? Well, I think it's government. I think the government, governments don't, you know, have not, the last time a, a government's properly supported the arts was probably the Whitlam government. Mm. I think, you know, we're really shit at it. Um, but, you know, any time we don't win enough gold medals, you know. It's, <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't, you know. Fire the selectors. We're the, the sparta of sport, you know. Yeah. Gotta, you know so, but I'm, I'm digressing. No, 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 but it is, it is like the central conundrum of being an artist in Australia is like... Yeah, you will be supporting yourself to mm. pretty much, yeah, pretty much entirely. Um, yeah. Yeah, and the drive-by publishing thing too is interesting because like one of the things that I hear said off mic a lot is like, oh, there's a lot of there's a lot of poetry being published at the moment. Like I've got so many books, and mm. like I say this on the show all the time mm. too, um, and I'm sure it will annoy publishers to to hear me say that. But I wonder whether it's like. Yeah, but we need to publish a lot of books because we need to make some money off each of the books to keep going at all. Yeah, yeah, just to have some sort of churn. That's um. Well, I wonder. I mean, I don't know because I'm not. Yeah. Do they make money out of poetry? I'm I not sure. I just don't know. But I think yeah, the economics of it are very. Look, I think one of the one of the things I love about the poetry scene is that um, because money's not really the object. Um, it's better. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. But I think yeah. that um, the, the trouble is, look, it's, look, I'm not, all right, here, like, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an old father. I've published with six or seven books. Um, I've done it all, like, I've, I've never received any government funding. So that's, um, I've been able to do that because I'm freelance, because I've stolen from my family, <laughs> right? Um, and you know, the, the, it's talking guilt, like the guilt I feel about that's pretty big. Um, you know, so that, you know, my family pays a price every time I choose to ignore them and go and put on my beret and mm. pretend I'm a poet or whatever, mm. right? You know? mm. um, so um, I just wish we, va we valued our culture more. I don't think we do, and I think that you know, and I think that that's, um, yeah. I mean, look, you know, Helen Garner's a good example. Helen's um, getting some really great sort of accolades now. She's getting published in New York. Terrific. Yeah, and she's yeah. she's a gun, right? Yeah, very exciting. Um, and the other, thing, but the other thing is, is that she comes from a generation that actually is the last generation that got properly supported yes, or half decently yes. supported by government to produce. Yeah, thousand percent. And yeah, so, there's, a, there's an entry in the Yellow Notebook where she's like, I got money from the Australia Council, I will have an office in the Nicholas Building, yeah. and I will go to work every day for a year, and I will be a real writer. And it's like, God, Helen, like, no one can afford the fucking <laughs> Nicholas Building anymore. <laughs> like, and, that's, and, and this is the thing, I'm like, wow, yeah. you know, and like, God bless Helen Garner. Exactly, And it's like, but I'm, the thing I'm thinking about is, well, what about the next Helen Garner? Where you know, because like, you know, I'm you know I'm able to. I mean, would I have written more books with more support? Yeah, I would have. 
would they have been better? I don't know. Mm. Yeah, that's but I mean, but I've been able to do it. But I'm sort of um, I've been that's only through good fortune, right? I'm able to because of the way I work. I'm a, I've been able to support myself and scramble by. And a lot of people just don't have that luxury. And I just think it's a real, um, you know, but we'll all line up for the new Marvel movie or something. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But then I think about Gwen Harwood writing in her kitchen table for her whole life and, like, her her fucking husband who will not, like, he can't deal with a a shop-bought cake. Like, even at the (laughs) end of, like, her life when she's undergoing cancer treatment, he's like, oh... Gwen, this cake is bought from the shop. I, I much prefer the ones that you really? like. Yeah, no, for real. What an asshole. It's so heartbreaking. <laughs> but she never even had a real desk. Like she just, yeah, yeah. yeah so, so then I think about that and I'm like, maybe I just need to try harder. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's a thing where, I mean, it's, I mean, one of the things, I mean, this is where kids are, having kids has helped me. You know, like, um, you know, Sophie, my oldest, you know, again, she's got Down syndrome. And the way that she throws herself into her life, the verve with which she lives her life, is really um, informative. Mm. Like, um, she's been, you know, she's been dealt this car that she's got an intellectual disability, she's just getting on with it. And she's an absolute um, powerhouse and doing, and, do, and does stuff. But, you know, what, so the point here is, whatever, you know, these are the cards I'm dealt, what am I gonna do about it? Right, exactly. And I, yeah. and I can, and I, I I don't have time. Again, like how long are we here for? I don't have time to feel sorry for myself. Mm, mm. Um, I've got to get on with it and try to make something that right, produce something that is meaningful to me, and hopefully is, you know, is good enough to be published and be meaningful to at least someone else. Mm. You know. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I find so much time to feel sorry for myself. Do you? I really do. Uh, I I wanted to. It sounds like you've kind of answered my my question here because you have been. You said you have been writing poetry, but sometimes when I hear that a poet has gone off and written a novel, I feel a little bit like my nerdy friend has gone and hung out with the cool girls in the canteen. And I'm yeah, like, oh, yeah. But are you coming back to sit with yeah. us later? Well, I think. Um, yeah, I don't know if I thought the poets are the cooler ones. To be honest, I think, I mean, the, the weird, you know, like when I hang out with, you know, when I sort of, hang on, put it, the novelists are not my peeps. Mm. They're not my family, you know, they're not my tribe. Yeah, okay? yeah, um, yeah. I'm a poet, so that's my tribe. Um, I find poets hilarious and infuriating, uh, endlessly <laughs> entertaining. I love yes. it when they fight. It's great. Yeah. It's absolutely great. Um, I read this, this sentence the other day from an article maybe maybe 10 years ago, five years ago, and the writer was saying, the history of Australian poetry could be described as a history of conflict. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like, I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit like, um, um, cursed to my, my wife, and she, she studied at Berkeley in America. And um, yeah, in sociology, and one of the jokes that in sociology was like, why is the um, why is the competition so fierce in sociology? Because the stakes are so low. Stakes are so low. And it's that whole, it's that whole thing. It's really, it's such a ferocious, ferociously competitive sort of environment. Um, and I watch it, and I'm just like, why? Well, no one cares about us. Like, can't we just be nice to you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I was at a reading the other night where everybody just read Skylar to each other. Yeah, I heard you talk about that. It was so I mean, lovely. I was listening to you talk about that and I was like, I need to go out to more readings. Like, I just don't. I mean, this is one of the things. I don't get out much. I mean, I'm usually taking kids to baseball or basketball. or So I just, and I, again, I feel like I'm ripping off my family phone do that sort of thing but I do need to go to more mm. poetry readings what was it like was it good it was the the thing about it that I think there's maybe a generational thing happening because it was run by poets a little younger than me and the audience were quite a bit younger than me mm. and 
when I go to events run by those guys, mm. I really don't feel that everybody looking over their shoulder, kind of who's got what and who's doing what with whom. Um, I feel like a true sense of like a supportive community. I'm probably not close enough to mm. it to truly say that that is like the case, but that's how it feels. Um, and yeah, the difference with this night was that we were all reading some other poets work. So the focus right. was not on us. Which is a very cool thing. Yeah, it was great. It was really great. Yeah. Um, I feel like I want to ask a last question about mm. this book because it's really going to, it's going to stay with me for a long time. I can, I can tell. Um, yeah, I mean, I described it as risky before, but do you feel yeah. that? Yeah, look, the funny thing is I'm finding it, um, yeah, I, I've, I said when I, when I finished writing it, I felt like I needed to get help because I thought I was going to hurt myself. Um, and I found myself getting upset when I was talk when I've been talking about it. So it's, yeah, it, I guess in how I feel, um, yeah, it's, it's been risky, I think. And it's, um, and sort of it's, it captures, I mean, you know, every book is, you know, sort of like, you know, lightning in a bottle. And this sort of captures an emotional part of me at, a, at probably my most fraught, I'd say. So, yeah, so uh, I, I'm looking forward to getting to the next thing. Yeah, the right. way Because it's, it's been, um, yeah, it's, it's been a very, um, look, I think it's, I think it's, um, I think of it like my collection of poetry. I think it's, it's good. I think it's a really, I think it's a really good book. Um, as in it's the, it's, you know, it's a, it's a piece of me, um, that I couldn't repeat. And I, when I look back at it, I don't know how I wrote it. Mm. So that's, if I feel like I don't know how I wrote things, I feel like I've resolved them. And I've definitely, Year of the Wasp felt like that. I don't know how I wrote those poems. Mm. I don't know how I wrote this novel. Yeah. Yeah, it just got me thinking, like, I totally know how I wrote, like, these are my <laughs> poems. I'm like, yeah, I remember where I was sitting and, like, what I was thinking. That was my conversation with Joel. Thank you again, Joel. Thank you again, Noah and the whole Dean household for having me around. Got to meet the beautiful Berkeley as well, Joel's gorgeous little dog. Uh, yeah, we, Joel and I kind of sat down after I stopped recording and talked about some practicalities, you know, time, money, work, all that sort of stuff. I'm thinking a lot about all that at the moment, how to, how to arrange things um, so I can pay bills but not go crazy uh, in a, I know I'm always complaining about that, but in a bit more of a serious way this time, not just a whinging for the sake of it kind of way. So it was, it was really good to, to talk about that with somebody who's, um, yeah, a little, a little ways ahead of me. So thanks again, Joel. I do need to address this last episode that I did on Harper, which, as I predicted, got quite the response. First of all, I want to address this response from Issy Unikovsky, whose book uh, Kintsugi came out in 2022. Really impressive debut collection that I would recommend to you. But yeah, the thing about having Issy as a listener is that he knows a lot <laughs> and I am a bit of a, um, a bit of a trash bad fuck up so <laughs> so what he said about the Harper episode was um, that I really want to highlight is this really excellent point that that he made um, that I really didn't make properly so is he says that this poem Charles Harper's A Midsummer Noon in the Australian Forest is an example of a tradition in Australian poetry of taming the landscape as part of the colonial experience that saw the bush through British eyes and interpreted it through the tropes and values that permeated the colonial culture. So this poem is of interest, I would argue, from that point of view, rather than any literary merits. And then at the end, 
uh, Issy says, I think you picked the wrong poem for the project of close analysis and to respond to Sophie's question about where you stand in terms of tradition. Harper's poem is a historical artifact, but as you have discovered, it holds little interest for us as a poem as part of a tradition. Instead, as you pointed out yourself, it's the poems of the generation of 68 that form part of the tradition in which you do stand. These poems are definitely of much greater interest for us as literature, as exemplified by your excitement in response to Forbes et al. Um, yeah, so it's a really excellent point that Issy is making about the way that these poems um, act as a, a sort of a way of organising and taming and smoothing out the idea of the landscape. And I didn't really make that point clearly enough. I noticed that as I was editing, I thought, oh, I'm kind of like hinting at that, but I'm not unpacking it properly, um, really, because I just don't feel that I have the, the knowledge to do so. And yeah, I think it is the wrong poem for a close analysis. As I said to another listener, it was really a drive-by reading that I did, not a close reading, because the poem just doesn't hold up. <laughs> but, um, but I don't know if it can be wrong for me to choose this poem to describe my own understanding of the Australian tradition. What I was trying to get at was these poems are still there. They're, they just sit there. They're rusted on. They're just... I did, after I recorded that episode, end up going to the bookshop and I did find an anthology um, with, which began with this Harper poem. And the anthology was this gorgeous hardback thing complete with an image from the McCubbin triptych on the cover. Listeners overseas might not know this triptych, but there is a there's a triptych by a guy called Frederick McCubbin called The Pioneer, and it is the, I guess, the story of um, Australian settlement told, told in these three panels. And it was the, the middle panel that was on the front of this anthology of Australian poetry that I, that I picked up that had the half a poem in it. This stuff is just there, and for me, I don't feel like I can talk about um, Australian poetry and like skirt around it and but the thing is is I feel like I have been doing that for a long long time in my own mind and also on the show I have been acting as if this stuff doesn't exist and what I was trying to do was just acknowledge it just kind of go yeah and then there's all this um, really quite terrible stuff that, yeah, we, we did move past and, and the stuff that we write today is very different and contends with very different issues and has a very much deeper understanding of even just the environment that we work in, the natural environment that surrounds us. Um, but it's still there. I don't know if I'm making my point all that clearly, but yeah, I appreciated. I always appreciate Izzy's notes because it gets me to kind of think, okay, what was I actually trying to say and what did I what did I end up saying? I did also have a lovely response from Sophie herself, Sophie who inspired the episode. And Sophie kind of made the same point that Izzy made, which is she said, I can't help but wonder if there is a political element in the idea of establishing Australia as this beautiful, quiet, uninterrupted land even though Harper likely experienced his fair share of oddities as well. And then she says, it is also very, very British colonial. It's so very superior in a way I would hate to read in a poem today, but that says something both interesting and unflattering about the culture. I don't know enough about Harper himself and his project as a poet to comment on whether he was like overtly political in writing that way. But I guess we could just assume that he was writing poetry that he thought would be popular and be published and at the time poetry that made the Australian bush seem like this tame, um, beautiful, quiet, uninterrupted place was the stuff that people who read poetry uh, in English wanted to read. So maybe it's not so much political as like a product of that, that set of priorities. So that's a little bit of follow-up. I'm going to leave it there. I uh, 
I'm actually, I'm not at home. I've taken myself away for a couple of nights just to read really and just to, just to have some quiet. The day job has followed me as it, as it tends to do when these days when you can take your laptop, you can, you can take your work and uh, my boss definitely has my phone number but in the time that I'm not spending thinking about that I'm really really loving just like getting to some of these books that I haven't opened for such a long time Wits and Weddings um, included actually maybe maybe I'll just grab that and read you a poem from it just before I go why don't I do that yeah why wouldn't I this is a very short 10-line poem that really just killed me when I read it last night. It's called Home is So Sad. Home is so sad. It stays as it was left, shaped to the comfort of the last to go, as if to win them back. Instead, bereft of anyone to please, it withers so having no heart to put aside the theft and turn again to what it started as, a joyous shot at how things ought to be, long fallen wide. You can see how it was. Look at the pictures and the cutlery, the music in the piano stool, that vase. Yeah, some of these poems I hated and some of them were just about the best best things I've read in in years um, but yeah that one home is so sad that really really got me yesterday